Anyways, we're in Nehemiah. We're going to finish up. Uh, I'm actually going to preach two sermons today. Not a be Neither one of them are super long, but God's just been showing me a lot of things. And I just, I was going to save one until next week, but I got to go ahead and share it because if I don't, uh, I'll explode. Uh, we're, we're going to start in uh, Nehemiah 12, and we're going to run through these last chapters like we did the previous chapters last week. We're going to continue talking about what it means to, to build a wall, to spiritually restore the God's people, the house of God. Because like we talked about last week, the, the, the house of God, if you look around, the house of God lies in ruins. It's not the shining example and the beacon that it was supposed that it used to be and that it's supposed to be to the world. You say, is that going to change? Absolutely. Absolutely. You say, how do you know that? Because my Bible tells me that Jesus is coming back for a church that's like a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hid. <clears throat> Say, well, you, I believe there is going to be a resurgence of the church of Jesus Christ in our nation. I believe there has to be. I believe there has to be. It's what, I, what I'm believing God for because Jesus is not coming back for a defeated, haphazard, halfway church. He's not coming back for something less than he left. And so what does it mean? It means that we as the people of God have got to rebuild, rebuild the church of Jesus Christ because we're the ambassadors. And your life is weak in the faith. What kind of ambassador is that? I'm supposed to be... Second Corinthians tells us we are Christ's ambassadors or his representatives on this earth. You know, for a long time I remember the what would Jesus do bracelets went around. And everybody was wearing them, but nobody was doing it. You know how I know that? Because the church was filled with people who they wanted all of the, the ease of it, but nobody wanted to flip over any tables. I got news for you. Jesus loved everybody. He also turned over tables with righteous indignation. See, nobody talks about that part of it. Jesus loved everybody, but he didn't come to unite everybody. The Bible says he came to divide. He came, he came to bring a sword that was going to divide you know, moms and daughters and, and fathers and, and, and sons because there's going to be a divisive nature of following Christ. We can't expect that we're going to follow Christ the way that we should be following Christ and we're not going to ever create any tension. See, the church, is, the church has gotten afraid of controversy, roiled in controversy on this earth. It was constant. Everywhere that he went, there was controversy between him and the religious crowd, him and the sinful crowd. Jesus brought controversy because of the way that he lived his life and the expectation that he placed on the people that were going to follow him. See, I've had, I've had situations arise in my life because, I'm going to be honest with you, there was a stage in my life where I thought my job was to knock over every single tradition of the church. And I was wrong. And I was wrong. And if you believe that, it, listen, there's music now, the whole thing about knocking over every tradition. Why? Why? Some traditions are good. It's like the old story of two people walking in the woods and they come across the fence that goes all the way across where they're walking. And one person says, you know, for progress sake, let's tear that fence down. And the other person says, hold up, what's the fence doing?
Because, see, realistically, where that fence is running, it's one thing to tear it down for progress sake. It's another thing to tear it down if it's holding in an entire, an entire uh, pen of wild boars. There's a purpose to the fence. See, what I fail to understand in my ignorance, in my immaturity, is, is in so many of the things that have gone on in the church world, there's a purpose to it. See, there are some things that were traditional that may not, listen, it may not be one way or the other. It may be a biblical neutral, but it had good principles. There were good things to it. There was a good reason for it. It existed for thousands of years for a purpose. Because it built insulation. When you raise children with no traditions and no moorings and no anchor, don't be surprised when they float away. But it's because we've allowed ourselves to be drawn away from the actual things of God in pursuit of, I'm going to tell you, people. We've got to win more people. To what? To what? If we're not winning them, to a real relationship with Jesus Christ, then what are we achieving by going into all of these calisthenics and these religious calisthenics and spiritual calisthenics to try to reach somebody who doesn't want to be reached with truth? Well, we'll get more people to come if we do this. And? If you're in a car driving to hell, don't fill it up. All we want to do is fill up a car if it's going the right place. I, I, the only reason we want to fill up the fill up the car, the only reason the church needs to be full is if it's in the wrong direction. It don't need to be full. Bible says it's the blind leading the blind, and what happens? They both fall in the ditch. We're gonna have a good time. Nehemiah verse twelve, I mean, Nehemiah chapter twelve. They dedicate the wall. They dedicate the wall. They all come together and they make a dedication of the wall that is there to protect the house of God and the people of God, they make a dedication of it to God. So if I'm going to build a wall in my life that surrounds my family, it has to be a wall that's not dedicated to me. I don't want you to build walls that are dedicated to Crown Church. Don't build walls dedicated to denominations and organizations. Don't build walls dedicated to nations. You build walls dedicated to God. See, what's happened is the churches that I've been a part of all my life, they built walls dedicated to the denomination they were a part of. They built walls dedicated to the church they were a part of. They built walls and all. Here's what happens. Every one of those walls, you know what it does? Those are not walls that isolate the world. wall that is dedicated to God, it's going to isolate everywhere a wall is built. And I've been a part of all my life. I've watched denominational churches side by side that won't even have anything to do with one another because they have built up a wall that they have dedicated to the Baptist or dedicated to the Pentecostals or dedicated to the Assemblies of God or dedicated to the Methodists, and you have these divisions. But they built a wall to surround the house of God, and they dedicated it to God. God. And anyone who dwelt within that wall was dwelling within the presence and the place of God. See, if I'm dedicating the wall to me, 
I'm isolating everybody. There's been a bunch of walls built in, in, in the church world. Bunch of walls built. Very few of them have been dedicated to God. But they dedicated this wall to God. Then Nehemiah lays out, we're not going to read all of them, the procedures for the temple. He says, now that we've rebuilt the fortification around the house of God, it's time that we rebuild the house of God. He says, now that every person has done their part to fortify the city. See, what are you saying? why are you saying that? I'm telling you, you cannot rebuild the place of God until you rebuild the people of God. Once you rebuild the people of God, then it's time to look and say, let's rebuild the house of God. He said, now that we have fortification up, now that everybody's done their parts to secure around their homes, now we can turn and say, okay, what's wrong in the temple? See, y'all aren't catching what I'm saying. He said, I can't fix the temple until we fix the people. Everybody says if we could fix the church, we'd fix the people. No, it's backwards. Until you and I, as the people of God, get our homes repaired, get our homes out of disrepair, clean up the situation around our house, we don't need to turn and look at the temple. See, order will... If the only time your family worships is in this house, you're not doing it right. You say, what are you saying? I'm saying there should be family worship in your home. If for no other reason, so that your children can participate with you in worship. But he says, we got to build. Now he said, now we got to reestablish the principles of the temple. You know, I, I had this conversation this week with my mama. And I went through a stage in my life. As I get older, I've changed a lot. And I continue to change, thank God. How many of y'all are glad to grow? Anybody glad to grow? And I used to be, well, we don't know, you know, the church doesn't need a building. But it does need a building. Because God needs a house. When I was a kid, and, and it, 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 it sticks with me, and the older I get, the more I think about a lot of the things Daddy would say. Daddy used to say a church should be in the best place in town if you have to move the First National Bank to put it there. And I, and I was thinking, I was talking to Mom this week, I was thinking about all of the amazing cathedrals that they've built all over Europe that are thousands of years old, that you look at them and you're like, I mean, these, 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 are, these, are, not, these are not just buildings. These are just amazing monuments to, to, to the way that they saw God. Why is it important that we honor God in his house? Why is it important we tell men, take your hat off in the house of God? Why is it important we, we tell kids, you got to act a certain way in the house of God? Why is it important we come to the house of God in a certain way? Because we're honoring God. And I look, at those, I look at those amazing cathedrals that were built, and you realize they were built by people who they, most of the time in their life, went without. Which I'm not telling you God wants you to do without. That's not what I'm saying. But here's what it showed. They were willing to do without so that God's house could be stunning. You say, why did it matter? Because it's the way they viewed God. It was the honor that they paid to God. It was the way that they saw God was that he was worthy to have the best, most beautiful place in all God. 
I don't have a shabby God. He shouldn't have a shabby house. And so he said, now that we've got the wall rebuilt, let's look at the temple. Let's get this situated. So Nehemiah said, we've, we, got the, we got the easy part done. Now let's go to work. So they, they, they give the rules. You, y'all, if you haven't read them, you can read them. Then, chapter 13, he says, all right, we've got to get all the foreigners kicked out. Y'all, 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 y'all don't hear what I'm not saying. Watch. He says, if you look at what happened, according to the law of Moses, there were people who were part of the Amorites who were not allowed to worship in the house of God, but they were being welcomed in to the house of God. And they were not, being allowed, they were not allowed to worship in the house of God because of the disrespectful way that they had treated God's people. He says, you can't bring just anybody into your fellowship. You need to understand something. Every person is welcome in this church, but not everybody is welcome in our fellowship. Everybody can come to church, but not everybody's family. Because if you're going to be family, you've got to have the same daddy. You can't have our name if you don't have our dad. Everybody can come sit in a seat. But until you're a part of the family of God. And what he said here, he said, they said, he told, he told the people of, of, of Jerusalem, he said, you are welcoming in people who do not hold your values and hold your belief in your God and your opinion of your God and your view of your God who, who, who worship other gods and other idols. And he said, that can't continue. Church, we cannot have church. We cannot do the work of God if we're so busy allowing ourselves to be infiltrated by the way a world operates. This is truth. You don't have to like it. If it sends you home, go home. Because this is truth. This is how you rebuild the house of God. This is how you rebuild the church of Jesus Christ in our country. It has to stand for something. It has to matter. It has to mean something. My faith has to be me, has to mean non-negotiable. It can't be something that's traded because something is easy or something you won't. You can't trade your faith because of something your children won't. I can't change my belief system just because something may, because it makes something I want to do in life not right. If it doesn't line up with what the Bible tells me to do, I shouldn't do it. It's not, it's not that difficult. So, for the, so they said, okay, okay, you got to get all the Amorites and the Moabites out of the church. I could stay here for a minute. Because we got churches all over this country that are full of Amorites and Moabites. Well, they're just still working on it. No, they're really not. Because no one's challenging them to work on it. Listen, I'm all for people coming and being in the house of God and people being introduced to God and us walking them through and helping them through a process. But at some point, 
At some point, there's got to be a place where they move from always needing to be discipled into a place where they can begin to disciple. If you Listen, if you want to be a part of the house of God, it means you abandon the world. The Bible, Jesus said a man cannot serve God and mammon. Can't serve God and mammon. See, mammon, everybody says, that means you can't have money. That's not what it means. It means you can't serve God and a world system. You cannot have one foot on one side and one foot on the other side. You got to be all. He says the thing he hates most is someone who's lukewarm. He said, I'd rather you stand on this side of the fence or that side of the fence. If you try to straddle the fence, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. James says that the, 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 the wishy-washy man, the dubious man, the man of two minds, said he's, he's, he's unstable in all of his ways. said, I can't focus on one thing and I can't focus on both things. But the churches are filled. Our churches are filled with people who on Monday through Saturday live one way, and on Sunday, here we are in church. And here's the thing. Every one of us has been guilty of that. Every one of us has been guilty of that to where we're so, man, we are, we, we the most on fire Christian you've ever seen at Sunday morning at nine o'clock. But then when Monday rolls around, we got to go deal with people. We fall into a whole different, different, different image of who we are. Oh, not me. Yes, you have. I've done the same thing. Get geared up for church on Sunday, buddy. So, at this point in the story, Nehemiah, he leaves and goes back to the king. Before he, come, he comes back, but he has to go back to the king. He has duties to attend to. Well, while he's gone, things start to fall. Because leadership is left. You say, what's the biggest problem facing the church world? Leadership. Leadership. Let me put it this way. Lack of leadership. Lack of leadership. Because what should have happened in this instance when Nehemiah is left is the men of of Jerusalem should have stepped up and continued walking the path that he had set before them. But instead, here's what you had. You had a high priest who was set over the storerooms. A priest who set over the storerooms, his job was to collect tithes and the offerings and put them in the storerooms so, distri- so they could take care of the needs of the house of God. What does he do instead? He moves Tobiah. He moves Tobiah into that room. He moves Tobiah into that room. Who's Tobiah? Tobiah is the Amorite who tried to get Nehemiah not to build the wall. He literally opened the house of God and brought the enemy who wanted the wall torn down into the house of God and put him in the storeroom. He put him in the supply. You know why? He was related to him. Let me tell you what that's showing, what that means. It means that priest had married himself off to the world. He had married himself off to the Amorite. And he said, well, you know, that's, that's my, my niece's cousin's sister's whatever. He needs a place to stay. Let's put him right up here in the house of God. He had, he had joined himself to that system. He had joined himself. He said, it's okay. There's plenty of room in the house of God. We'll just move the provisions of the house of God 
and move an infidel in. You want me to tell you what that is? Well, I'm all in. I might as well. It's corporate-run church. That's when church becomes a corporation. They get out and they move a corporation and a corporation mindset into church. And what you have there is a world system trying to run a theocracy and a godly kingdom. And it leads to destruction. Listen, there are more churches in this country than 13 other cities. We're going to do it right here. And they bring it in, and they manage it just the same way. And they go, and they take every poll known to man for they plant a church, and they look at demographics, and they look, oh, well, how many folks live here between this age and this age? What's the race of these people and the race of that people? They move corporate world. That's what moving Tobiah into the house of God was. It's here's this man who is, who is in opposition to what we have been called to do. Because you know corporate, the corporate world is not called to kingdom work. It can't do kingdom work. My daddy used to say this all the time, you can't raise children through an institution. And so what has happened is, he said, oh, it's all right. Tobias all right. He's all right. Look, it works for this and it works for that. Let's try it. Nehemiah come back home. And it said he went and took all of Tobiah's belongings and threw them in the yard. He said, Tobiah, you got to move. You're going to have to be moving on. Church of Jesus Christ in America, you're going to see a bunch of people take Tobiah and throw him in the yard. My daddy used to always say, he said, when before Jesus comes back, God's going to call all the ministries in, all the showboats in. And he said, they're either leaving back as a battleship or they're not going back out. What you're fixing to see in this country is you're going to see an expulsion of Tobiah. This says, this has got to go. Listen, there was a time, you know, mo almost every church denomination, you know how it started? I can tell you for sure how this hymns of God started. I grew up in it. It started as a group of fellowship churches so that they could send missionaries. You know what it became? A corporate monster. You know what every denomination in this country is? A corporate monster. And while we're at it, I might as well just go ahead and kick this door open too. You know where they put their hand? They put their hand in the storeroom of the house of God. Same corporate mindset, stuck their hand right in the house of God's coffers. If you don't believe that, you ask any minister at any of the major organizations where they have to make sure they send their money. I can tell you the large percentage of the, of the denominations in this world, they, the people that sit in these churches, they don't even own their building. You know who owns their building? The denomination. You know what happens if they leave the denomination? They lose their building. They cannot, the congregation that has paid the bills on it can't take their building. You know why? Because Tobiah has been living in the storeroom too long. Because Tobiah put up camp in the storeroom. Nehemiah said, no, we're not going to roll that way. We're not ever going to roll that way. He said, no, get your stuff. You're moving out. The thing you'll see about the man Nehemiah is two things. Nehemiah had a lot of righteous indignation. 
And the other thing you will see is this. Because of that, and when it was righteous, he was a violent man when necessary. See, we live in this world where they say, oh, men shouldn't be violent. That's bull. You know why little boys fight? Because God made men to have an ability to make violence when violence is necessary. Because every man in this room, you may not think so, and you may have been neutered by society, but I'm going to tell you something. You have the ability to be violent when violence is necessary. Truth is truth. I'm so tired of seeing neutered men. I'm sick to death of it. I'm sick to death of seeing men be neutered and saying people like, oh, that's good. He's just a kind, sweet man. Listen, if you're a man and you're not capable of violence when violence is necessary, you need to check your man card. Go through the Bible with me and I'll show you that every man we talk about in the Bible, when it was time, they went to war when war was necessary. From John the Baptist until now. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Listen, Christianity was not made for neutered men. Y'all, I'm going to go high-five Brother Floyd because he's the only person in this place that's preaching with me. He'll meet me halfway down here, too. He's the only one who's preaching with me. You know why? Because he pastored for 50 years, and he saw this foolishness. He saw all this foolishness that people have been doing. He said, now that y'all done messed everything up, he said, we're going to have to make sure we get the tithe to the house of God. So what's Nehemiah do? He says the tithe was restored. He told him, he said, listen, go get God's money. Go get God's money and bring it up here to take care of the priest's in the house of God. That's what he told him. He said, y'all go get your tithes and offerings because God's storehouse is empty because Tobias been living up in it. So he said, y'all go get your first fruits, get your cattle, get your sheep, get your lambs, and, and y'all restock the house of God. The very first sermon I ever preached when I started pastoring the church in 2010, God gave me my very first sermon series and I preached on money. I said, thanks God, I appreciate that. But here's the crazy thing. Do you know the kingdom of God does not have a, a monetary problem at all? You know what it has? It has a giving problem. If every person in this country who professed to be Christians would pay God his tithe, every storehouse, every church in this town would be taken care of. And every outflow necessary would be taken care of. And the minister. I've seen, listen, I, I, when my daddy was in the denominational world, I've seen more ministers who had to have full-time jobs to just pay their bills. You know why? The house of God wasn't supplied for. Listen, Nehemiah didn't pull no punches. He said, listen, the, store, the, the, the rooms are empty, and they're supposed to be full. Next thing, the Sabbath was restored. The Sabbath was restored. He said, y'all need to stop violating the law of God and working 
and trading and making, making, making money on the Sabbath. He said, listen, we can't restore the house of God if we don't restore the tithe and restore the Sabbath. Y'all know that Sunday is the day we celebrate as the Sabbath. You know what? It's not any other day. This is God's day. This day belongs to Him. It's not another day where we can do anything we feel like doing. You can do it, but you're dishonoring God. That, that's what I said. Paul said, all things are lawful for me, but all things aren't expedient. I'm not talking about every now and then you take a vacation or a rest day, but I'm talking about when we treat this day like it's any other day. Oh, it's just the second day of the weekend. Actually, it's the first day of the week. Your week don't start on Monday. Your week starts on Sunday. Calendars are better at it than we are. I give God my first day. Well, kids got this to do. They shouldn't. It's the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. It's God's day. This. Verse 21. I was talking about Nehemiah making violence and violence is necessary. They were outside waiting, sleeping by the walls hoping they could trade on the Sabbath with the people, the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And Nehemiah said, But I warned them, saying, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. <laughs> King James, I think, says, I will lay hands on you, doesn't it? Yeah. King James says, You sleep by that wall one more time, boy, and I'm going to put my hands on you. He said, I ain't playing no game with you. That's God's day. That's God's day. Do it one more time. Try it one more time. And Nehemiah said, listen, I am not a man who wants to do violence, but you do it one more time, and I'm going to put my hands on you. He said, I warned you. I ain't warning you again. It's like my daddy used to say about the, the Quaker who was a pacifist and nonviolent? He had a man break in his home and he leveled a shotgun on him and he said, Brother, I mean thee no harm, but thou art. <laughs> Nehemiah said, I done told you once. <clears throat> I told you once. That's the last time I'm going to tell you. I'm going to put my hands on you. You know why? He had righteous indignation because they were disrespecting God. Listen, what David told Goliath, he said, listen, you ain't talking to me. You're talking about my God. You say anything you want to about me. Don't talk about my God. Don't disrespect my God. And most things you say about me are probably true or have been true. At some point in my life, you say, I mean, I'm sure they either are now or have been, but you can't disrespect my God. And Nehemiah said, don't do it again. Y'all ever run up against somebody that you knew you didn't want to fight? Anybody? And, I mean, you know, you know, I mean, you're not, you may not be going to back down, but you know you're probably going to toe the butt whooping. I mean, I feel like Nehemiah was that guy. 
I feel like Nehemiah is that guy where he said, don't make me tell you again. And you just could look at him and be like, I, I don't need to have to tell him again. I, don't need him, I do not need him to tell me again. Yeah, I mean, it, it was one of them moments. So then he goes into forbid. I mean, listen, Paul says, be not unequally yoked together. Said, don't go off marrying somebody that don't share your values. You know why? You're going to get a world of hurt. You're going to get a world of hurt. You can do it. Have at it. But you're going to be fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. But what he told him, he says, listen, well, here, watch this. Watch this. I love how this says this. It says, in those days, I also saw Jews. This is verse 23 of chapter 13. I also saw Jews who had married women from, from uh, Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them knew how to speak Hebrew, the language of Judah. Now, y'all got to read what that says. He says they were not being raised to understand the customs, the principles of their faith. Now, y'all ain't even heard me. Say so they're going out and marrying. They're going out and joining themselves to a culture where they speak the language of that culture, but don't speak the language of their culture of faith. Y'all, that is our children. That is the children that this generation is not the language of the faith. He said they speak the language of the infidel, of the unbeliever, but they don't speak the language of Hebrew. They don't speak the language of their forefathers. They don't speak the language of tradition and of their culture. And that's what we're raising. The church has failed its children and is raising a generation that understands everything about worldly culture, but nothing about Christian faith. Do you know all children are being indoctrinated? Do you know that's what education means? That's what the word education means. It means to indoctrinate. They're being indoctrinated, but are they being indoctrinated with the sound doctrine of the faith, or are they being indoctrinated... By the Amorites, or they're being indoctrinated by the world. I'm not going to get into it right now, but we are in the preparation stages of trying to put something together in this church to help insulate your children from that foolishness. Y'all be praying God's, God's leading in some directions that we're going to try to put something together to where we have an opportunity to offer education to children that is not mired by that foolishness. We're working really hard on it. It's deep water. We ain't ever been in it before. But it's going to be a way to insulate our tribe. Because I'm going to tell you something. Even if you have, if your kid goes to what we saw at school that is inundated by people that don't know God. And they're going to war zones, spiritual war zones. That they're bombarded with things that they should not have to deal with at the age that they are. Why? Because we want our children to speak the language of their faith. Not the language of the world. 
It's amazing to me when I read, read different things and read surveys of young people, how few of them even know the reason behind water baptism or know what it genuinely means to be saved. Know what salvation is, what redemption is, what water baptism is, what the blood of Jesus Christ represents, the very basics of the faith. They don't even know that. You know why? They're not being taught that. But they know every bit of foolishness that the world puts on because they don't speak the language. He said, your kids. And I found that fascinating that he doesn't say, hey, they dress that way or they look that way. He said, the way they talk. You know why? Because the Bible says from the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Listen, if they were speaking the language of the Amorite, it's because they were Amorites. If I allow my language to be the language of the world, guess what? It means I'm of the world. Saved. The heart man believes unto righteousness, but the mouth, what? Confession is made. They couldn't even speak the language of their faith. Didn't even understand it. Wow. Oh, that's astonishing to me. <laughs> Verse 25. So I contended with them, cursed them, and struck some of them, and pulled out their hair. It didn't mean he cussed them. He cursed them. He spoke curses on them. He beat them and pulled out their hair. He said, how dare you? Well, listen, Jesus said you'd rather a millstone be tied, be tied around your neck than to offend one of these little ones. Nehemiah said, how dare you let your kids grow up without an understanding and warn them. He just put his mitts on them, man. I mean, it was no warning to be had. He said, I'm going to warn these guys trying to sell by the wall. He said, but you ones that are letting your kids be raised in a worldly manner, come here. Faith, come here. You say, what are you saying? I'm saying if we as men see that going on, you need to say something. If you men in this church see me raising my son, he's a man now, but I still have to raise him. You see me raising my son in a way that is not befitting the household of faith and the house of God, I expect you to walk up to me and say, Pastor Johnny, that is not in alignment with the Word of God. And if you men in here don't want that, leave. You say, are you trying to run everybody off? Yeah, kind of, not really. No, you know what? I want roots. I want roots. I want somebody that we can push against a little bit and they don't fall over. I want, I want men in this church to have roots where if we come up and say, hey, you know what? This don't line up with the Word of God. If the men of this church come to you and say that, you know what my response to that is? You know what? I'm sorry. Repent. Ask for forgiveness and move on in a better direction. But we got to be willing to accept that. I mean, don't worry, we ain't going to pull on your hair or smack you or nothing. Well, I mean, unless the time arises. Y'all got to understand, I'm more in favor of old school posses than I am what they do nowadays. I think if somebody does something bad enough, you all just be able to get a group of guys together and hunt them suckers down. 
I mean, Jason's over here wanting to have a ministry of laying on hands. But he, told, he went to him. He said, listen, this ain't going to happen no more. You're failing the next generation. You're failing the legacy of faith. Because you know what happens? That happens about two more times, and you know what there is no more of? A Hebrew language. No, y'all ain't heard me. Let that happen about two more times. We're probably in the second generation of what I'm talking about. It happens one more time. There won't be a church of Jesus Christ. There won't be an actual foundational, faithful church of Jesus Christ in this nation. Because we're probably at least two generations into people not speaking the language of faith. And you let it roll on a couple more times. Another couple generations of kids be born, and it'll be like, listen, because if this would have happened, they'd have been, what's Hebrew? What's Hebrew? Oh, that's, that, that's, that, that is the voice of your fathers. That's the, faith, that's the faith of your fathers. That's the declaration of your fathers. Oh, we don't even know that language. See, what's popping up all over this country is young churches with pastors who preach all kind of foolishness. You say, what are you talking about? I saw, I, J.D. showed me a video of a church in New York City. There's a woman pastor who preached on the prodigal son being a transgender. That what, the reason he left was because his father would not accept his true identity. Yes, I'm telling you. Oh, they, listen, the amount of foolish stuff that goes on in what's called now, quote-unquote, the progressive church. But you know it's full of? Young people. You know why? They don't know it's wrong. You know why they don't know it's wrong? They don't speak the language of the faith. They don't speak the language of the faith. That's why the vast majority of the people, of kids who leave a church, you know what they do? They go to school. You know what happens when they go to school? They end up denying the faith because they learn a new language. The SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention, put out numbers that one out of 22 kids who leave home and go to college actually come back to the faith. One. 21 of them they lose. 21 of them. You know why? They're taught a new language. And they forget the language of their fathers. You know why? Because they didn't really teach it to them. And he goes on and he says, we're not doing this no more. Verse 31, it says, And I provided the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits, O oh my God. Please remember me for good and imprint me on your heart. He says, the last thing Nehemiah did in the book of Nehemiah is he went out and got the wood offering so they could offer the first fruit sacrifice. And then he said, God, imprint me on your heart. See, but he said, find, find favor. Find, find, but let me find your favor. Let me, you see me as good. He said, all these things that I've done, I just want to be good in your sight. You say, why do you say that? Because this is what I believe. Should, should, this is what I believe. I was talking to, uh, to Brian and Bobby a little bit Wednesday night. I mean, Thursday night, I'm sorry. And I told him this. I said, I think it comes down to this. Is say, is this thing that I am doing good? That's it. When you're looking at things, say, well, should, should I do this tradition or is it not tradition? Is it old school church? No, the question is not that. The question is, is it good? Is it good? Are the things that I'm doing good? Not are they okay? Because you know there's a lot of things you can do that are okay. 
Nehemiah said, God, that the thing that I've done, that it might be good and that you might imprint me on your heart. That's our prayer. That our defense of the, defense of the faith might be good and that God might imprint us on his heart. I'm done with Nehemiah, but I've got to share something else with y'all. I've just got to sit there for it. You ain't got to. You can leave if you want to. But you want to stay here. Because I told you we've been, been, we've been going through some things that we're going to do, some offshoots of the church, some ministries of the church that we're going to be doing. And it's, it's stuff we've never done. It's stuff we've never done. You know, every, every, some of the stuff we're doing with men's and women's group is stuff churches just don't do. I know we're in some different waters than some people. The stuff we're looking, the way we're looking at church is different. And so, you know, you, you have these moments where you're talking to God and say, God, am I, are you, am I sure I'm hearing you right? And God, I was, reading through, I was reading a book this week, and I read across the line in this book, and it stuck with me, and it really got me thinking about a few places in the Scripture. But it said this. It said, the spiritual world can never be suburban. It always has to be a frontier. And it made me think, and I began to think, and I thought, what happens to us so many times? How many of y'all get into a situation to where you, you, you just feel like you want to see new things in God, and you want to see the Spirit of God move in places in your life, but it just seems to not? Thank you for the show of hands. And here's why. Here's why. It's because we try to put it in our box. We try to put it somewhere familiar. We try to move it into suburbia rather than move it into the unknown frontier. Put it this way. The kingdom of God is a whole lot more Lewis and Clark than it is your neighborhood with a house 25 feet from you. One is safe. The other is risky. See, if we're going to do the things God calls us to do, we can't do it from the safety of what we know. We can't do it from the safety of what we know because what happens, how many of y'all can get comfortable in something and just settle in and not change and not do anything any different? That's, that's every person in this room. But what happens when you're walking in spiritual things? Jesus healed, what, I think five or six blind people in the New Testament? Five? How many ways did he heal them? Five different ways. When God gave a promise to Gideon and he got him down to 300 soldiers, you know what they took to go into the enemy's camp? A water jug and a stick of fire. You know how many other times God used that? Zero. God spoke to Moses through a burning bush. You know how many other times he did? God does things that pull us into new areas, and if we're unwilling to go in those new areas, we're never going to experience the fullness of what God is trying to do. Because you can't find it in your comfortable suburbia. You have to be willing to go somewhere where no other foot has trod. What did he tell the children of Israel? He said, every place that you put the sole of your feet, I have given it to you. But he said, you're going to have to take the soles of your feet and put them on some ground you ain't never put them on. When it was time for him to cross the Jordan, he said, when you see the Ark of the Covenant come by, he said, fall in behind it because you're going somewhere you've never been before. But we want God to come to us. We want to take, we say, okay, God, I'm, I'm, I'm comfortable here. 
I'm comfortable here. I know this area real well. But God says, oh, no, the well dried up, the brook dried up. I need you to get up and go to Zarephath because I've commanded a widow to provide for you there. There. He said, you're going to have to make the trek. You're going to have to make the journey. He said, what are you saying? I'm telling you right now, the thing that you believe in God to do for you is not coming to you. You've got to go to it. If you're sitting at the house waiting on it to come home, stop. Go, go to it. Hello. But I thought about this story, and I want to share this story with you. In Luke chapter 5, it says, Now it happened that while Jesus was standing by the lake, the Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding all around him and listening to the word of God, that he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, or which was Simon Peter's, and he asked him to put out a little distance from the shore, and he sat down and began teaching the crowds from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, Put out into the deep water. Put out into the deep water. King James says, Launch out into the deep. Put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch of fish. And Simon replied, Master, we worked hard all night to the point of exhaustion and caught nothing. But at your word, I will do as you say and lower the nets again. He didn't say, hey, just toss a net right over in the shallow water. How many of y'all know that Jesus could have put them fish anywhere he wanted to? He put gold in a fish's mouth. Could have put him anywhere he wanted to, but he said, no, you got to go out in the deep water. What he said was, I know you're tired. I know you're weary. I know you got the nets washed and cleaned and prepped to put them up. But he said, I'm going to send you back out in the deep. He said, I know you're back where it's easy. Simon Peter's like, man, I've been, I've been fishing all night long. I've been dropping nets and picking up nets and lowering nets and picking up nets, and I'm tired. I'm weary. All I want to do is go home. Jesus said, no. He didn't say, hey, just pitch your nets over the side. He said, go out in the deep. He said, go out there in the tough waters. Y'all ain't hearing me. He said, launch out in the deep because, see, the blessing wasn't there in the shallows. The real blessing wasn't there in the easy the real blessing was in the faith and the courage to launch out into the deep. He said, we done been out there. Jesus said, but you ain't been with me on the boat. He said, let's try it again and I'll ride with you. He said, you fished all night. You've toiled all night, but we hadn't. See, God won't ever call you to the deep water unless he's willing to ride with you. See, when he calls you to the new frontier, when he calls you to the difficult place, he says, you ain't going alone. I'm going with you. I'm walking with you to a place you ain't never been before. I'm going to fish where we hadn't fished. 
And it said, they, you, know, you know the story, he went out there, got out in the deep water, he put the nets in the water, and he come up with so many fish, they had to call the boats around them to come help him get the fish in so it didn't sink the boat. There is not a limit of fish. There's a limit of faith. When he says, launch out into the deep, when you, when you hear the voice of God calling you to scary places, See, it's in the scary, difficult places where the real blessing takes place. See, it's in the real, scary, difficult places where the life... Mm. You want life-changing, life-altering blessing? you got to go into the deep water with God. You can't stay around the shallows where it's easy. You can't stay in your safe, comfortable little neighborhood. You can't stay where everything's the way you're used to it being. you got to go try something you ain't never tried before. you got to go somewhere you've never gone before if you want anything to be different. Say, well, I'm pretty comfortable here, God. God says, well, then that's the only blessings you're going to have. That's it. you got everything you're going to get. But he said, if you'll launch out into the deep. It's scary out there, and, and. So I, over and over in the Scriptures, it uses these words, fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Fear not. Why? Because I am with you. He told Simon, Simon Peter said, nevertheless, if this is what you said do, let's go. Let's go. Y'all, the church needs more men and women who say, Nevertheless. I done been that route. I done tried that career. I done tried that job. I done sat down with a pen and paper and figured it all out, God. He says, yeah, but you didn't ride in the boat with me yet. I done tried that. Yeah, but you ain't rode with me yet, he says. Simon Peter, he, he told him, he said, we've been out there all night. And y'all, Simon Peter, it wasn't like he was an amateur. He was a fisherman for a living. That's how he made his living. He knew where the fish in the Sea of Galilee was. He grew up on the Sea of Galilee. He knew right where to fish. He knew where the deep holes, the currents. He knew the channels. He knew the deep areas, the shallow areas. But he said, hey, Jesus said, no, nah, but you ain't been out right. He said, what are you saying? I'm saying God can take something you think you know. Oh, I got to say this. Y'all let me a sip of water. God can take something you're bored with. And when he gets in the boat, it all changes. It all changes. When you launch out in the deep with him, say, he told Simon Peter, he said, we just go back where you come from. Oh, I love this. He says, we just go right back where you came from. But I'm going to show you the difference between fishing with you and fishing with me. I'm going to show you the difference between I'm going to show you the difference between working with you and working with me. Now I'm done, y'all stand up. Might get him a good stretch. That was that was that was absolutely that was a grown man noise is what that was. 
But I'm going to tell you guys, this is not a season. This is not a season for staying in the shallows. It's not a season for staying in the shallows. This church is going to launch out in the deep. But we ain't going unless he goes. I'm going to encourage y'all again from here to be at the men's and women's nights on Wednesday night. Because it is, it's life-changing. It's life-changing. It's life-changing stuff. It's life-changing relationships. Forming life-changing relationships. Man. I love the goodness of God. I'm amazed by the goodness of God all the time. Anybody in here willing to launch out into deep water? Anybody willing to try something they ain't never tried before? Anybody willing to try something they've tried a hundred times, but try it with Jesus? Anybody willing to learn something they don't know from Jesus? Anybody willing to stop sitting on their behind waiting on God to do what they, he's called them to go do? Amen. It amazes me as you begin to go through the Gospels and then into the New Testament, the Pauline epistles, how many times you see when God, God said, and you cast out devils. You raise the dead. You heal the sick. He didn't say, go pray and I'll do it. He said, you get up and go do it. I've given you authority to trample on serpents and spiders, to drive out demons. But you know what that requires? Willingness to step out into that deep water. Go out into the unknown. You say, Pat, I've never seen a blind eye open. Have you ever tried? It's that deep water. It's that new frontier. That's that stepping away from old. Yeah, but that scares me. Okay. Okay. And? And? Can I tell you this? Fear can't be an excuse. So how do you know that? The Bible says, God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound, well-balanced mind with discipline and self-control. So if I have fear, I know where it didn't come from. So it's not, it can't be an excuse. What ifs can't be excuses. I'm not enough can't be excuses. Because through him, you are more, more than a conqueror more than enough I'm going to quit I won't ever get done preaching 
Hallelujah, hallelujah. Go ahead and just put your hand on your neighbor next to you. Just pray however God leads you to pray. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Lord, we thank you. Lord, because you are a glorious and holy God. God, I thank you because you are a holy God, a God of light in dark spaces, God. That you are a God of healing. That you're a God of victory. Lord, I thank you for a bold people for a fearless people, for a courageous people, God. For a people willing to launch out into the deeps this morning. Willing to step away from the safe places and go to the places that you call us, God. We we stand here this morning on the shoulders of giants. That we are alone in our in our pursuit of you and in our walk of faith, God. I thank you because that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. That our lives have been written out, God. The days of our lives have been written and established before we ever lived one of them. Lord, I thank you for mighty men and women of God. Lord, for men willing to stand on the wall as watchmen on the wall to guard and protect your people, God. Lord, give every person in this room divine appointments. Give us supernatural courage, God. God, that we might walk in the fullness of your love, in the fullness of your spirit. Lord, we might walk in faith because your word says that without faith it is impossible to please you. Lord, we believe that you are, that you are a rewarder of them who diligently, diligently seek you. As we leave this place, God, that you would keep your hand of protection upon each one of us. Lord, until you our lives glorify and honor you. We give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Hug someone's neck and you can be dis-